0: We have a domain expert in the world of VC, and someone who's been a visionary when it's come to one of the biggest movements in VC over the past eight years, emerging managers. Samir Kaji of Allocate is a well-respected industry leader in the VC world. He spent over 20 years partnering with VCs at First Republic Bank and Silicon Valley Bank, where he led the venture capital and private equity banking efforts. At First Republic, he built out the infrastructure and client base that served the VC and private equity communities. In that time, He's become an unquestioned thought leader in the world of VC, particularly in the emerging manager space. He's consistently written seminal thought pieces and instructional guides on the topic and now talks about the space with his own podcast, Venture Unlocked. His experiences working with many of the top VCs and LPs globally has culminated in a journey that he's now started by founding Allocate. He's observed a number of inefficiencies with emerging managers when it comes to firm building and capital raising. He's seen emerging managers struggle to fundraise due to difficulties finding the right LPs. And he's seen the challenges that LPs have with being able to locate and allocate to new emerging managers, many of whom have gone to outperform benchmarks and become the next generation of brand name firms. He believes that this ecosystem is ready for a decentralized, democratized, and diverse ecosystem of fund managers, and Allocate is the connective tissue that will solve these challenges for both GPs and LPs alike. Samir and I had a fascinating conversation about the evolution of venture capital. He's seen a lot in his career in Silicon Valley that has spanned multiple market cycles. He shared his perspective on why emerging managers are the future of venture capital, how LPs will be able to better discover and allocate to fund managers, and what the future of venture capital looks like. Thanks, Samir, for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast to share your wisdom about the world of venture. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Samir. Samir, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast.
1: Thanks, Michael, for having me. I'm excited to be here, and you've had such a great group of guests. Hopefully, I can follow those acts. Oh, I'm sure you
0: will, given what you've done in the past and what you're now doing with Allocate. So first, let's start with the past, though, because you've spent a lot of time in the alternative investment space, particularly in the venture world. So tell us about your background and how it led you to where you are today starting Allocate.
1: I had a very interesting route into venture, and I always joke that I fell into venture. I was actually. Working at a Sears Roebuck selling vacuum cleaners after I graduated and was kind of looking for a job and looked at the San Jose job board, which is where I did my undergrad. And I saw a opportunity at SVB, uh, Silicon Valley Bank at the time. I ended up applying on a Friday, got a job interview on Monday. This was 99. And so everybody was hiring. And of course, we were in a world of euphoria, not too indifferent of what we're seeing right now. And I decided, hey, this is pretty interesting. All these tech companies are building interesting things. They're going public. Might as well try it. And and I did that. And so I started at SVB in 99, working with early stage companies. At the time, there was no seed. So it was series A, series B. And I was doing a lot of lending. And then 2000 came and the bubble burst. And I, I sort of looked around and said, what did I get myself into? I thought companies just go public in 18 months and you make a lot of money. But it was a great time for me to learn. I saw what happens when things don't go up and to the right. Worked with companies for about nine years directly, and then got a tap on the shoulder in late 2008 to join SVB's Venture and Private Equity Group. I went kicking and screaming to a certain degree because I didn't want to work with VCs. I wanted to work with founders, and I really enjoyed that aspect of the job, getting in early and being part of the journey. But 2009 was this uh, really tough, Point. And venture and private assets were a battery category. Not a lot of money was going in. Institutionals had major issues with liquidity and the denominator effect. But what came out of it was this interesting trend of the cost of starting a company coming so far down with the advent of cloud computing and distributed networks. And we saw the iPhone and we started to see this new generation of venture firm that came to market that didn't look like their forefathers. These are funds that were 10, 20, 30 million dollars. And you know some of the names, Aiden Senkut at Felicis and Jeff Clavier, Steve Anderson <laughs> at Baseline. And they were investing at the early stages and really bridging the gap between traditional angel money and traditional right. Series A. And so for me, that came this natural intrigue because these people felt like entrepreneurs, first of all. Many of them were operators. And they were building businesses. And it, it actually brought me back to the days I worked with entrepreneurs. And so ultimately, in 2011, I looked at that opportunity as, hey, this is where the world is going to go. We're going to see decentralization. And I joined First Republic at that time with this harebrained idea of building a business around small emerging venture managers and private equity managers. And ultimately, we built that business to about 46 people with over 700 firms on the platform. So ultimately, it worked in venture and private equity now for 22 years, and it's been a wild ride.
0: So I want to touch on something that you referenced a little bit earlier in your background, which is that you were reticent to work with funds because they weren't necessarily founders or entrepreneurs. But then, as you clearly saw from working with many of these emerging managers, that in their own right, fund managers are entrepreneurs. Talk us through how you think about that and how fund managers are business builders themselves.
1: Historically, a lot of partners would join existing firms and they'd never really gone through the fund raising path, never actually built a firm from ground up. And if you're a manager that's starting off with a fund one, you're not just raising a fund. You are building a business that is expected to last the test of time. And typically that's a 20 to 30 year time frame. And in 20, 30 years, a lot can happen. So you have to think about everything from fundraising to operations, to hiring talent, to culture, to maintaining a competitive edge and creating it in a way that allows you to scale as a single operator or maybe a small team of two. And so it is very much building a business and building a business that you hope to last a very, very long time. And so as I've talked to so many managers in the past, make sure you're ready to commit to a 10 to 20 or 30 year life cycle. What do you think that managers who
0: were once just VCs, maybe at a bigger platform or operators, and then decide to become business builders as fund managers, what do you think that they should be asking themselves or evaluating as to whether or not they are a good fit to do this rather than join a larger platform and just be an investor, but not necessarily worry about the business of venture?
1: Well, I think the the main thing is really understanding whether you truly want to run a business. There's nothing wrong with just focusing on investing and helping portfolio companies, but people often underestimate the time that's spent on non-investing activities when you're a managing partner, and so. Do you want to go through all of the things that are necessary to build the right infrastructure and the culture and hire and run a team and procure and manage talent? These are really tough things to do, especially as the environment constantly changes. And so where do you want to spend your time? Do you want to spend your time 90 to 100% investing? Then, well, if that's the case, you're probably better off joining a firm. If you really want to build something in your own way and you're okay with all the things that come with it. Building a firm is an exceptional experience and can bring great financial outcomes, but also is quite rewarding to build a firm in in your own lens.
0: Well, that's what you're doing at Allocate, which is helping particularly emerging managers build their firm. So tell us a little bit about Allocate. I know you're just starting the journey of building that business, but tell us why you started Allocate, what it is, and who it's serving.
1: Yeah, so I'm going to take a step back. So when we started our business at the bank in 2012, we saw this interesting opportunity where we did feel a lot of new funds were going to come to market. And fundamentally to that, this was when three years after the iPhone tech was becoming much more mainstream. We saw the Kaufman report that said smaller funds outperform larger ones. And our view was there were going to be this slew of managers that were going to be building firms for the first time. And we knew that capital formation was going to be an issue for a lot of them and capital formation structural issues and environmental issues. So structural, if you're a big institutional investor, your check sizes don't align with a small manager. There were some brave souls like the, the Chris Duvoses and Michael Kims that were willing to make those bets along with Greenspring and a few others. But by and large, large institutions weren't able to play and, and participate with these smaller managers. The other thing is there's a risk element of investing in a first-time fund. The ones that have invested, obviously, uh, have paid off if you invested in a lowercase one, a K-9, fund one, and initialize, and and so on and so forth. As we built our business, we acted as the intermediary between fund managers and investors that were hungry for that type of exposure. And what we found was, as the world continued to fragment, there's been over 2,000 emerging managers that have formed since 2007. In the U.S. alone, if you go global, that's even more. And this is across seed to series A regions type of funds. We found that investors had a tougher and tougher time discovering and accessing managers that were relatively close to whatever their investment mandates were. And we saw this over and over. And ultimately, about a year ago, we looked at the environment and said, this is going to get even worse. More managers are going to come to market. The world of accredited investors, family offices is also increased. They all invest differently, by the way. But there has to be a better way to streamline and act as the middleware between investors and fund managers. And that's ultimately what we're building at Allocate. So
0: you're hitting on a lot of different... Topics within the evolution of venture. So let's first start on the LP side. So, what's the case for venture in an LP's portfolio? Particularly, as you mentioned, many new LP entrants are coming into the market, whether it's individual accredited, high net worth investors, whether it's wealth managers and RIAs as they break out of bank complexes, warehouses. So, what's the case for venture? in an LP's portfolio? And then secondly, what's the case for an emerging manager in an LP's portfolio?
1: Yeah, good question. And they're actually somewhat similar in some ways. But venture right now is in a really interesting point of technology is now mainstream across industries. And the pandemic, if anything, has shown the acceleration of certain trends that were going to happen, but now condense in a very short time frame. So the outcomes are bigger. More value accretes in the private market than ever before. So if you think about the past, and I I think back to when I started, Amazon went public at a $300 million market cap. Google went public at an $18 billion market cap. By the time companies of scale are going public now, you see things like Coinbase, right? Five times what Google. So being in the private markets is, is a place that you have to be as an investor if you're going to capture any type of alpha. And if you think about venture capital... Venture capital is investing oftentimes at the earliest stages of companies that are really shaping the future of the world related to technology and life sciences. So to me, from a overall standpoint, like venture is a place that you want to put a little bit of your assets, typically five to 10%, depending on the, the size of asset allocator you are, but also it provides great asset allocation diversification, right? It's not highly correlated with other assets. And especially when you look at early stage venture provides this, uh, you know, massive outlier performance, emerging manager even takes it to the next level. If you look at the performance of first quartile emerging managers and the way we define emerging managers, it's loose, but it's fund one, two, and threes that are raising fund sizes anywhere between a zero and, you know, $500 million. The vast majority of that concentration is sub $100 million dollars. The performance for those funds is for a number of reasons. One, they're smaller, so you don't need to re- you know return $30 billion in enterprise value to get a three or four or five or six X. But also that these people are artisanal managers that have specific domain expertise in certain areas that give them an unfair advantage. And so having some emerging manager as part of your portfolio gives you exposure at the earliest stages of these companies, and you look at companies like Uber and Carta, in many cases, they had multiple emerging managers in the seed or series A of those companies. So you can capture a lot of alpha in that area. And so that's going to continue. The other thing is for family offices, a lot of these emerging managers, because they are small, provide great co-investment opportunities at those later stages, the series A's, B's, and C's. And it's another way to increase overall return profiles if you get access to those handpicked deals in the later stages.
0: So you mentioned things like Co-Invest, which yes, family offices certainly love. And then smaller managers, kind of people can allocate more. They can be more hands-on. Do you think that there's a movement towards investing into smaller managers from much of the high net worth community? Because one, they can't get access into many of the larger funds. So is it done more out of necessity or is it done more out of interest?
1: I I think in the past, it was done out of necessity. If you look at the Sequoias and Lightspeeds and Idreesons and Benchmark, By and large, those are firms that will box out 99.99% of the population. And where they do take money typically is from the institutional crowd that's either been with them for a long time or represents something strategic for them. And so in the past, people said, well, if I can't get access to those, I have to look at who could be the next Andreessen or who could be the next Sequoia or the next benchmark. And I think over time as the emerging manager asset category, which I do consider a sub-asset category within venture, has matured and people have seen the type of outcomes. I think people have become much more amenable up and down the investor stack to invest at the early stages of these firms. And what you've also seen is the sophistication of these managers also improved as now starting a firm is not a complete black box you have folks like recast and operator and Kaufman fellows and so many online resources that help managers think about how do you actually create a thesis how do you run a firm and how do you do it in a way that's institutional quality and so we're seeing much of that along with the fact that you can get exposure to x lightspeed partners because you can invest in an unusual ventures or a fathom, or so on and so forth. And so there is a lot of opportunities and much more interest because the, the sub-asset class has matured fairly dramatically from when I started covering it in 2011.
0: Are we seeing the phenomenon as emerging managers themselves evolve over time? You named a bunch of great names, whether it's Ribbit, Felicis, Goodwater, the QEDs, the Initialize of the World as they get bigger in size and scale as a platform, are they becoming now hard to access where if you weren't in fund one or fund two, then it becomes hard to get into fund five, six, or seven?
1: I think it's impossible to get in, generally speaking, in in those type of names. And what I think people are also finding is the most successful names, even by the time they get to fund three, they become very difficult, and in some cases, even fund two. The answer is yes. So out of necessity, do you need to start looking at those fund one managers and get access early and build a portfolio? In some cases for large institutions, it's options. I put a million dollars in. Michael Kim has you know, created some great programs and done phenomenally well in investing early and starting with starter checks and then growing as some of those breakout managers get to a fund too.
0: Yeah, you just recently launched the Nano program.
1: Which I I think is a fantastic idea. So I am a, a big believer of these small 10 million and under funds. You can be a collaborative investor, you're not competing. And if you're highly networked and have an interesting angle, you can get deal flow that is absolutely amazing. And we've seen folks like Ryan Hoover do this And others. And I am very, very optimistic about the fund performance. I personally worked with a lot of these managers and have seen some of the performance that they've provided. And so, yes, I think what Michael's doing with the nano funds is uh, in- incredibly interesting.
0: So on the point about these micro funds or nano funds, sub $10 million managers, there's different classes within the emerging manager category to some extent. There's the more traditional seed funds that are 50 to to $100 million now, and they may have to think about getting bigger just given all the dynamics and venture that are changing, but we're seeing pressure on emerging managers writ large across multiple attack vectors now. So like from bottoms up with innovations like rolling funds or so the solo capitalists or operators slash investors, and then from top down with the crossover funds and larger platforms that are now just doing survey checks to get into deals early. What does this mean for the emerging manager category and how do they deal with this completely and, and fast-changing landscape?
1: And it's going to continue. We're going to see pressure on both sides. In, in terms of the number of new managers that come to market, we still think it's going to be 1 to 200 new managers that come to market every single year. Now, there may be a transient period where you know if the market does shift and we see a recession of any type, we'll see a reduction in that. And you're right, Sequoia has their seed fund. Andreessen will invest at the seed stage and partly to get the early look to lead their series A and lead the series B. Now, I I think for emerging fund managers, what this does is it puts a lot of pressure in terms of what is the service layer that you provide to your entrepreneurs? What type of brand can you build? What is your reputation? and, And how well have you defined your zone of genius? I always look at things and say, Do you systemically have something that other people don't? Have you identified it? Is it clear and tangible? And does it really drive something? If that's the case, you can actually succeed despite all of the competition that is coming to market. I think it's a very different funding model if if a big fund is investing in a seed And what you expect as an entrepreneur. The big firms can bring a lot of resources. They can bring a higher valuation, which I think you have to be careful of taking too early. But I I still do think that there's a lot of really interesting seed funds that have a competitive advantage, even in cases where a big firm is coming downstream.
0: Well, I think you referenced something that I want to go deeper down the rabbit hole, which is where an emerging manager can really add value. But in a world where rounds are getting bigger, valuations are getting higher, ownership is now getting smaller for some of these smaller funds, in a sense, they have to have better outcomes to have better returns, but they may have less ownership for that. You know, there's often this saying that your fund size is your strategy. So how should these emerging manager funds think about navigating a landscape like this? Should they stay small? Should they try to raise bigger funds to keep up with the times? And then if so, what do they need to do on the LP side to be able to prove to those LPs they can raise these bigger funds?
1: Yeah, there's a lot embedded into that question. When you look at increasing Fund size. Most managers do look to increase fund size from a fund one to a fund two to a fund three. The main question that needs to be asked for any manager looking to do that is if I move up in weight class, am I prepared to box at that new weight class? And we saw this in the uh, mid 2000s where funds got really, really big. And partly because there's so much capital being thrown around, and the bigger you get, the different uh, opponents you're going to face, the different your model changes. Your ownership has to be a certain level. You can't be as flexible as a small firm. So I, I think the bigger question is, if I do move up in fund size because of environmental factors, environmental being the rounds, the series C now is two and a half to three million versus a million. Sure, you have to do that to get a stake of the company. So organically, you are going to grow a little bit, but how fast do you grow? Because if you grow too fast, too quickly, you actually lose your competitive edge. It comes at the conflict of returns for your limited partners. So if somebody says, hey, I'm going from 25 to 100, what I would be looking at, what LPs are looking at is, is this manager still uniquely positioned to have the same type of return profile at 100 as they were at 25? Now they're leading deals. That's a big difference than being a co-lead or a participant in deals. And so I I think the bigger question is, yes, there is some growth that needs to happen because of the environmental factors, follow-ons, things like that. But does your zone of genius allow you to scale in a responsible way without coming in conflict with returns? And it's a tough game to play because you see everyone else growing and There's always this allure of management fee too, where the money's here. So how do I turn it down if the University of Michigan is coming and knocking on my door? So it's a very difficult thing, but it's a balance that needs to happen.
0: Well, And also, if managers are not as proven, they may have to spend a disproportionate amount of their time fundraising as opposed to the larger funds that we know can and that's no need to name names but like the best funds they can raise funds in a matter of weeks if if not less than that. So so how do those managers who are smaller in size have to think about weighing the LP side and the fundraising side of this relative to the the rest of their business building?
1: Uh, unlike what a lot of people believe, fundraising continues to be a really tough thing for emerging managers. The average fundraise still is about 17 months from start to finish and A lot of it is not because they're not good managers. In fact, I've worked with some of the most exceptional managers that today you look back and say, they had a hard time fundraising, but they did. And partly the reason is because the world of the investor side or the LP side is so fragmented and opaque. Like, where do I find the right people? So a lot of people look and say, well, maybe I grow my fund because I can get an institutional investor in there. I can find these institutional investors, everyone knows who are Greenspring or TrueBridge or some of the endowments or foundations that are active in investing in emerging manager. If I just get one of those catalyzes everything, it's easier versus trying to hit the pavement and find all these small family offices and high net worth individuals. And so some of this is like that balance between, do I keep my fund size small? which could box me out from the big institutional checks, right? Because it's just too small for their allocation sizes. Or do I stick with a small fund size and go through the pain of finding that the right family offices to back me? Some of this is market-driven. Just because you want to raise institutional capital doesn't mean you can. We are seeing a little bit more amenability, but... There are some bars that you need to cross to get the institutional capital to to invest in your firm. What are some of those bars? Here's the biggest issue with a lot of the institutional is many of them have invested in venture capital for a long time. They have a book of fund managers they've backed. There's a lot of re-ups right now. So re-ups with existing managers used to be on a three or four year cycle. They're more on a two year cycle and often less than that as the bigger fund managers or aircraft carriers, as we call them are always launching new products. It could be an opportunity fund. It could be a crypto fund. And so you're constantly working with your existing managers, taking away the oxygen to identify and evaluate new managers. And so you have to be truly exceptional to attract institutional capital. So what people are looking at is, what have you done before? Obviously, track record is first and foremost. Second, do you have an interesting point of view in the world that gives you some level of competitive advantage for not just right now, but for the long-term, so not a short-term triage. Number three, do you understand what it means to build an institutional firm? Have you thought about, from an operation standpoint, from a capital standpoint, your brand, your service layer? And if you've done those things and your fund size is typically over, you know, let's say outside of Michael Kim doing the nano funds, you have to be that 30, 40, 50 million to start to attract some of that institutional capital.
0: What do you think the LP side of this marketplace is thinking about as they see this evolution of emerging managers? How do they also find the right managers and what can be done to help them figure out the ways in which they should be working with the emerging manager community?
1: It, it's a big challenge right now. When I started my career, and even as recent as 2009, 10, There was a limited universe of managers that you would have to sift through. Now trying to boil this ocean in an efficient way is nearly impossible. And so most of the institutional LPs and non-institutional LPs usually over and have a reliance on these small insular networks to find deals. A GP sends them something, another LP. So what we try to do is we try to curate really interesting opportunities to them in a way that aligns with whatever they're looking for so we've seen everything we've identified the different managers and part of allocates mission which is a small segment of what we do is allowing people to see the type of managers that are relevant to their investment mandates and there's this whole saying with family offices you've met if you meet one you've met one (laughs) that's
0: exactly right (laughs) (laughs) and so
1: there are certain families we work with that over index on things like hey, we want to invest in funds that align with where our family made money. Or we want to over-index on things like ESG or underrepresented managers or underrepresented markets. So we take everything that we know on the fund manager side to provide them those type of opportunities consistently with transparency and allow them to evaluate at scale. Do you think that
0: there's a way, you mentioned before, 17, 18 months to average fundraise is there a way to shorten that cycle significantly
1: for many of these managers? There is. And, and there's a couple of things that we see as opportunities to do that. The first is making sure the collisions between those LPs and GPs are done more efficiently and more effectively. Oftentimes, what happens when somebody's raising a fund is they talk to two to 300 LPs, of which a third of them, when you get on the phone within 10 minutes, both sides know, know that it's not a fit. And so there's a lot of these conversations that are done because of the information asymmetry that exists. So there's one way which we are doing, which is creating that curation layer between both sides. The other one is unlocking this massive supply of wealth that is the non-institutionals. So despite the fact that there's so many family offices and individuals that now can invest in are interested in investing in venture, investing in venture is really hard. Because how do you find the people, how do you evaluate? And and most important, how do you access? If I want to write a $100,000 check, even in a small manager, unless I'm highly connected to that manager, they're likely not going to take me because it's not worth the admin pain. It's a situation whereby I may only have 100 LP slots, And I can't really take those small checks. Our our view, though, is there's ways to unlock that through structured access, which is another major segment that Allocate is focusing on, giving somebody the ability, whether it's direct or, or through a gateway, be it a family office or a registered investment advisor, the ability to invest in top tier emerging managers at check sizes that are much smaller than what the minimums are. And so these are the ways that we're looking to truncate the time a fund manager spends with fundraising, which, by the way, is great for everybody because you provide a higher likelihood of that GP hitting target, therefore being better able to execute on the strategy and being able to spend more time on the things that are accretive to adding value to LPs and to the founders.
0: You mentioned one important point in there, which is the newer entrants into this market don't know how to figure out which venture funds they should be allocating to. They may see things from their friends or their networks, but that may not be the fund that they should be allocating to. How do you think about educating the LPs about the world of of venture, and in particular, emerging manager venture capital?
1: We've spent a lot of time doing this through research, through events. We regularly host family office events, which include both sophisticated families as well as non-sophisticated families. Venture, uh, which a lot of people forget, is a highly esoteric asset category. That's hard to understand. It's power law and it's how do these companies go from money losing businesses to being worth $10 billion. It requires a lot of education. And so we put together content, we put together events, and we create a structured educational program to allow people to better understand what they're investing in. And to do it in a responsible way. Because one thing that we did see quite often is people that were not in the circles, first of all, they weren't getting the greatest deal flow. Second of all, they were making decisions on investments that they had very little understanding of what they were investing in, which sub-optimized their overall return performance, their experience in investing in venture. And so if you think about how do you unlock this capital, well, it is a combination of education. It is... Curation, it's helping them think about evaluation, and then provided structured access into the right deals.
0: And in a world where many people now have access to direct investments as well, how do you think the case for investing in funds that are curated by managers who do this professionally, are in networks, have expertise, should be made versus having people invest directly into companies?
1: This is something that has been a, a really <laughs> tough thing to explain to people but my view has always been and I, I live in the market that unless you are deeply ensconced in the market itself and are evaluating these companies every single day, it's always better to have these investments on directs go either through a fund manager where they they're making the actual investments, or fund sponsored where the manager itself who's an expert is bringing you the opportunity through a co-invest direct investing is very very difficult even the best managers often have subpar returns because of the difficulty of sourcing picking and winning the right deals now you take it to the next layer and say well you're trying to do it as a non-expert as somebody that's not in the same circles And it's very, very difficult to be successful. And it's actually created some negative bias to venture capital with a lot of these family offices who have said, hey, I tried this and I lost a lot of money. And it wasn't because the asset category was a a bad asset category. It's because they tried to do these things that were highly specialized themselves. And they were reliant on small networks to be able to make those decisions. And so our view is the best thing to do is if you're early, invest in funds, and if you want to do the directs, do the directs alongside those top fund managers.
0: I think you're hitting on something that's so important in the diligence process of a fund manager, which is edge and why a fund manager may have an edge over other fund managers and certainly those trying to invest directly in the company. So how do you think about edge when it comes to a fund manager? What do you look for? What are the questions you ask?
1: Some people think about differentiation and why are you different? Differentiation on its own doesn't actually mean anything. You could be different. You could have two heads and you're different, but does it actually mean anything in terms of your ability to source and win the deals? So what we look for as people that evaluate managers, and I've been through 800 evaluations, managers, and probably seen 1200 pitch decks is do they have something that really matters that gives them a slight edge? It's not a major edge because when you look at investing, especially in early stage investing, there is a major component of luck that is involved. And what you're really looking for from a skill position standpoint is, is there a skill or some type of characteristic that gives you that slight edge? This is no different. I make this analogy quite often of if I'm sitting at the blackjack table and I know how to play blackjack the house usually will find a way to win, all right, from a mathematics standpoint. But if I know how to um, play the game, my edge is slightly more than the person that is just splitting tens, right, for example. Now, if people know how to count cards, it gives them a slightly more edge. And so you are looking for fund managers that have their own version of that, that give them a slight advantage over the house consistently. And that could in specialization. Do you have a specialized view in a sector? Do you have a specialized network that allows you to see deals to give you a higher percentage of opportunities of hitting these great companies and great founders? And is it sustainable? And have you created a system that allows you to execute on that repeatedly?
0: What do you think are those edges in venture capital? Because we could go multiple different directions there where the platforms would say they have an edge either in creating content or Access to corporates and the enterprise side, or talent networks, or help. There's many different models. There's the Andreessen agency model, there's a data model, there's a sector expertise model. W- what do you think about when it comes to edge as like why somebody should, as a fund manager, stay at a larger platform
1: versus go off and break off on their own? I think t- in today's world, all, all those things are edges potentially. And in theory, oftentimes they don't actually add a lot. And because everyone's sort of doing it now, everyone's doing the content and everyone has perks and everyone has a great story. I, I, I think there is this element of in today's world, it's the person, what do they represent? Do they have a unique voice? Can they sell a vision? Do they have a great network? In many cases, entrepreneurs are picking people based on those interactions. And do I feel good about it? I just went through our fundraise right now, and we officially closed today, which is really great, but it really is the, the individual on the other side. And in today's world where there's so many solo fund managers, brand and reputation mean everything.
0: Well, you're hitting on something as well, which we're seeing now as a trend in venture capital, which is unlocking access to underrepresented or underserved communities. You've talked about this a lot. You've worked with managers who who are part of these communities. And that may be an edge going forward. So t- talk through that aspect of the evolution of venture capital of how there are now managers who, are, who have differentiated access to new networks, different sets of knowledge bases based on their backgrounds that may actually give them an edge in the venture world going forward.
1: So you make a good point from the standpoint there is specialization. That specialization comes, in many cases, of deep domain expertise in a certain area Forerunner, for example, started off with this and very specialized Goodwater, very specialized NFX, specialized within network-based businesses. And those give edges. Regions also give edges. Being a local funder in Los Angeles or Miami or Chicago provide advantages. Being underrepresented also provides certain advantages in allowing you to access the type of companies and founders that other people may not because they don't sit in those shoes. And so I think that's going to continue where you're going to see specialization, whether it be your ethnicity, your gender, your region, your actual sector focus, playing big roles in in allowing people to achieve these outsized returns. You mentioned a few different interesting trends. What in your mind is the next trend in venture? So the next 10 years are going to be incredibly exciting. (laughs) We're going to see so many different companies and I know we're in a world of euphoria right now, and marketplaces always uh, vacillate between greed and, and uh, fear, and we're in an extreme greed bordering on extreme euphoria right now. But from an innovation standpoint, comp- some of the most incredible companies are being formed right now. I, I think there are areas that I, I see a lot of growth, uh, particularly at the early stages, are with life sciences and seeing more com- more firms actually start life sciences. Life science funds that are seed in series A, whether that be biotech, med device, health tech, as well as I, I do think there's going to be this continued revolution of many more people that don't look like the traditional Sandhill VC that enter the market. And those are people that don't live in Silicon Valley or the coast that, you know, are underrepresented people of color. We're so early in that. Today, about 10% of investing partners are women. Less than 2% are Latin or African-American. But the talent pool is there. There's a massive talent pool. and The talent pool and the purchasing power of many of these constituents. Correct. And so we see, and there are people like First Close Partners and Ed Zimmerman doing things to really help drive that there's some other announcements that are going to be made of others So I I think if you look at the the next 5 to 10 years, more life sciences and certainly more people that are underrepresented starting funds and the rails being uh, put in place, including what we do, to allow those things to happen.
0: So how do you see allocate unfold in that regard, given that you've really put yourself right in the middle as the
1: connective tissue between all these different parties and trends? I go back to this view that if you look at investors and fund managers and think of allocate as that middleware that connects the two and creates the rails that allow those investors to invest in the type of managers that are either the emerging or or recently emerged in a way that's highly efficient. And so from that standpoint, if we can do that and we effectively do that, that of course allows fund managers to raise quicker from the right people and spend less time working with fundraising and more time actually delivering returns by investing in great companies.
0: So I I think that's absolutely going to be a trend and it serves all constituents in the market in that regard. One thing we didn't get to earlier, though, which I wanted to ask was the larger funds who are now either they've emerged or they're the blue chip funds. They traditionally haven't worked with the high net worth community. But you you rightly pointed out this trend of non-institutional capital is coming into the venture world and private equity or alts in in a big way. Do you think there's room for those investors, or LPs, to be investing into those larger, more emerged or blue chip brand name funds, and and is there a case where to be made for those funds taking non institutional capital?
1: Uh, so the answer is yes, with some caveats. So let's look at one major trend, and you cover this, you know, quite often both in your blog and your podcast, is that there's this in- increased inclination toward alternative assets and private assets in general. And the amount of wealth that's been uh, created during this bull run, we will hit about $100 trillion by 2024 in non-institutional capital. So that's a lot of capital. And people have gone away from this historic 60-40 asset allocation and invested more like those institutionals that put 20, 30, 40% into alternative assets. In fact, Cambridge had this great quote where they said, top decile institutional investors put up to 40, or or median was 40% into alts, meaning that this is the place where you can generate grid alpha. The problem, though, with venture fund investing is it's hard to get in at those smaller check sizes. And even if you were a QP with $10 million, if you walk up to a fund that's raising five hundred dollars and say, hey, I got $500,000 for you, which is 5% of my net worth, They're going to say it's just not worth the pain. So you have to create structured access. An example of this is somebody like iCapital, who I think has done a phenomenal job in showing that that is the case. You have the Carlisles of the world and the Warburg Pincuses accessing capital from this non-institutional market and that non-institutional market investing in these funds that are a billion plus. It hasn't happened in venture, but I think it's time.
0: I want to get into a more philosophical question on this point, which is that- As as you say, there's not many new large institutional pools of capital being created. There's not many multi-billion or hundreds of billions of dollar pension funds being created. But there is massive wealth creation happening at the individual level. And we are seeing the employer-employee relationship change. Individuals may want to work independently. They want to work as solopreneurs. And they may not get the benefit or coverage from... Their 401k plan that's now being unlocked to some extent through self-directed IRAs and access into alts. Fund managers also see this as an opportunity to fill the gap between what the traditional employer-employee relationship would have been the pension promise to some extent.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. So there has been this historical reliance on institutional capital, not because they only wanted institutional capital, but it was the only type of capital that could play at the levels necessary to access these funds. And you brought up a great point. So Not only have people put more money into alts and have increased their their interest in alts, but there are these now rails being created, like a company like Alto IRA that allows you to invest out of your retirement into alternative assets. A lot of people don't talk about this, but there's this huge wealth transfer that's happening where people that are now in their 30s and 40s and 50s are controlling the wealth. And many of them have grown up in a world of technology and are looking at innovation as... That area where economic expansion and financial outcomes are going to be created. So, fund of funds are institutional, but they often take money from family offices. So, that was like V1. Now, V2 is how do you do that in a scaled way? How do you take all of the capital that's sitting behind RAAs and multifamily offices and individuals? and create these structural beams to allow them to invest in a way that's institutional.
0: What would be really cool is if the conception of real money is changing, pensions, endowments, et cetera, higher education may change drastically so post-pandemic. And then university endowments may not get as much money. They may not be able to, to, to leverage that to be able to invest in these funds. So it'd be really fascinating to see if the conception of real money changes, both from the allocator side, LPs, then becomes individuals, and hopefully even not just accredited but non-accredited investors. And then on the fund side, those fund managers find a way where it's... Because it's hard to raise from non-institutional investors. Like It's a much different sales cycle. You know this as well as anyone. But institutions have a very defined sales cycle. There's a large pool of capital to get. So I, I wonder where... The fund managers start to think, OK, if real money, the definition of real money changes a little bit, how can I benefit these people? Because a lot of these managers are benefiting pension plans and endowments, which is really trickling down at the end of the day to everyday people, even if they don't necessarily know that they're in Sequoia or Benchmark or whatever.
1: You're 100% right. I, I think if you if you look at the entire world and, and believe and ascribe to this world, the decentralization and democratization of assets to more people and where people can have agency control of what they invest in and see the direct impact, we can get away from a world where the same people benefit from the same assets over and over again. And from our standpoint, it's a little bit crazy that somebody with $5 in net worth can't get access to an emerging manager. And this happens because they don't see it. They don't have the check size and buying power.
0: I, I will say this, though. They should do this in a systematic way, which is where you come in. It, it would be better if they didn't invest in any manager than invest in a manager who's not going to perform well. So they need a curated list.
1: Of course, you hit on to the main thing about venture is it is very skewed toward that top you know, decile and top quartile. And if you're not getting those top quartile returns consistently across your portfolio, venture is not a great asset category. But now if you do get the top quartile, the level of performance especially in emerging outpaces every single asset category by a large degree that's why it should be a staple of your asset allocation but only if it's done in a disciplined way
0: so one philosophical question about building platforms in this space can be specific to alt or or, or to alts in general or it can be specific to allocate but how do you think about the balance of, of curation so is less more Or is more better? And just having people pick and choose what they want versus the curation of of less is more.
1: I think there's two types of investors. There's ones that do want to see more and want things highly curated to them where they have agency control of what they invest in. Um, Because it's sometimes it's very personal from a family office perspective, because I may want to see all the funds that are solo GPs and I may have the expertise to actually pick them. But I think for the vast majority of people, less is more. And it's here's a basket of products or a basket of funds that meet your risk tolerance that allow you to learn in a structured way while reducing the level of risk you take. And I I think that's the bigger and fatter part of the market right now.
0: It'll be exciting to see all the innovation that happens in venture for the LP community, for the GP community. Is that community continues to evolve and you're right in the middle of it. I always end this podcast by asking everyone what their favorite or most interesting alternative investment is and why.
1: Yeah. So my purest answer is the venture capital firms that I've been lucky to invest in over the years and the actual individual deals. But I'm going to go a little bit off off track here because when I was 14, all the way up to the age of 18, I traded sports cards. I was a sports card dealer. My mom took me to the conferences at these hotels to sell cards at the cases, and the 89 Upper Deck Ken Griffey was one of my most uh, treasured possessions for years and years and still one of the best cards of all time. So I'm really excited about what is happening within the sports card world, and and you see platforms like Alt and others creating interesting ways. So I'm just starting it, but for me, it takes me back to my childhood and it is one of my favorite places now to participate. So
0: the question I have to ask is when are sports card funds going to end up on Allocate? I hope
1: sooner rather than later. <laughs> I'd invest <laughs> personally because I think it's a great, a great place. And so hopefully sooner rather than later.
0: That's great. Well, we covered the full spectrum of alts all the way from venture funds and startups to sports cards and sports funds. So Samir, thanks for coming on the podcast. This was awesome.
1: Michael, it's so great to, to be on. It was a lot of fun.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com. And follow me on Twitter at at Michael Stidgemore and at Gozalt. Thanks a lot and have a great day. We're going-